You know, the longer I am a pastor, the more I am convinced of this reality. The reality that the deepest of truths are for the darkest of times. The deepest of truths for the darkest of times. That I am convinced. Much though we try to avoid the deep truths of the Bible for the very reason that they make us feel uncomfortable, those are in fact the very truths that contain exactly what we need. In troubled times, we think we need something light, something easy, something simple, something basic. Sometimes that's all right, sometimes that's fine. But sooner or later, after the initial shock wears off and we are left with a gnawing pain in our souls, we need something more substantial than the theology you get from a Hallmark card. I'm convinced we need a more muscular theology to hold us up when our knees give way. We need something more than soft, non-theological cushions of warmth to soothe the soul in times of pain. Bottom line, we need a God who will not apologize for his sovereignty. We need a God before whom the precious free will of man is but a house of cards next to the sovereign omnipotence of Yahweh. We need a God willing to look us in the eye and say to our face that all the earth-shaking unforces unleashed in the world are unleashed by him. And yet my fear is, my fear is that the God of American Christianity that many people have inherited just might not be God enough to handle the coming terrors of the 21st century. John Piper put it this way. He said, our vision of God in relation to evil and suffering has been proven to be frivolous. The church has not been spending its energy to go deep with the unfathomable God of the Bible. Against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, much of the church is choosing at this very moment to become light and shallow and entertainment-oriented and therefore irrelevant in its answers for suffering and evil. The popular God of fun church is just too small to hold a hurricane in his hand. The biblical categories of the sovereignty of God lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible waiting for someone to seriously open the book. And all those landmines do not kill. They destroy, he says, trivial notions of the Almighty. That's one way to put it. Another way to put it is that the darkest of times, deepest of truths are for the darkest of times. And speaking of deep truths in dark times, that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 6 is. Because it's there, if there are any chapters in the Bible that could explode trivial notions of the Almighty, it is this very chapter right here, isn't it? Because you remember what Isaiah chapter 6 is, is a vision, a vision of God given to Isaiah, and not just a vision of God, but a soul-paralyzing glimpse of the majesty of God. It was a blunt force trauma to the soul that nearly wrecked him. Why? Because he walked into the nuclear reactor of the presence of God and he almost died from his exposure to God's holiness. 
And you remember this vision of God. It wasn't for no reason. There was a reason. And the reason for the vision is because the deepest of truths are for the darkest of times. Why this happened to Isaiah here at this particular stage of his ministry is because he was really, really going to need it. He was going to wake up that next morning and he was going to go out there and preach. Preach to a people who would only respond with opposition, who would only respond with rejection. Nobody was going to repent. Nobody was going to believe. No one was going to yield in subjection to the word of God. And so if there was any time in life that could be considered dismal and dark, it's this moment right here. And yet what God reveals to Isaiah in this chapter is our exhibit A, evidence that the darkest of times need the deepest of truths. And trust me when I say this morning that we are going deep. Like scary deep. Like The kinds of things that God says about his own sovereignty, frankly, to be totally honest, most people are just not ready to hear. And yet, we must hear it. We must hear it. Because what God is going to say is going to sound shocking and hard to believe, but it is the very kinds of thoughts about God that we desperately need to hear for the terror that is coming and is already here. The God of Isaiah 6 might not be the popular God of fun church. But he is a God supreme and sovereign who calls the shots and pulls the strings. And that is the very kind of comfort that we need. Prepare yourselves now. To stand on the ledge and peer down into the unfathomable depths of who God is. Which means we need to enroll with Isaiah again into the seminary of trauma. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text six implications. Six implications from Isaiah 6 that ground our hope, that calm our fears, and that increase our faith. That's where we're going. Six implications from Isaiah 6 that ground our hope, that calm our fears, and that increase our faith faith. Let's walk through the text. Let's begin first with the display of Yahweh's majesty. The display of Yahweh's majesty. We saw this last week. Let's review what we saw, shall we? You might remember that chapters 1 through 5 work in a pattern. Isaiah spends the first five chapters of his prophecy going back and forth between bad news and good news. And when the news is bad, it's really, really bad. When the news is good, it is very, very good. Isaiah literally alternates going back and forth between those two things. And the reason he does is to bring the apostate people of God to their knees in repentance. Then in chapter 6, all of a sudden, the pattern changes. Something happened. Something is different. Something has changed. And chapter 6, verse 1 tells us exactly what that is. Look what the text says. It says, in the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord. You understand the death of King Uzziah is a really, really big deal. The death of Uzziah means the death of hope, the death of stability. The death of a legacy, the death of a dynasty. Uzziah wasn't a great king by any stretch of the imagination, but he was about the only good thing happening in a country that was an absolute disaster. 
And so it's no coincidence at all that Isaiah would see a devastating vision of God at this particular stage in his ministry, because again, Isaiah was about to face a disturbing and dramatic shift in his ministry. And this new phase would include an increasingly hostile congregation in which there would be only resistance, only rejection, only opposition. That's it. And so what Isaiah needed to sustain him for a mission like that was a soul-paralyzing glimpse of the majesty of God, and that is exactly what God gave him. Isaiah suddenly found himself in the vision of Yahweh in his heavenly throne room, and this is what he saw. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted. And his robes were filling the palace. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And this one called to this one and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. And there it is, right there. The end of all fear. The fear of man. The fear of the unknown. The fear of evil. The fear of Satan and his demon lackeys. The fear of death itself. All fear obliterated and canceled in light of the jaw-dropping splendor and majesty of God. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, who could be afraid of enemies or bullets or COVID or atomic bombs when this God is on the throne? And the fact that he does sit on the throne indicates what about him? It indicates that he's sovereign, doesn't it? And what is the sovereignty of God but the greatest comfort in the universe? What is the sovereignty of God but the infinite power of God to do everything that he predestined to do before time began? What is the sovereignty of God except his absolute undisputed dominion over every detail in the universe? Nothing overlooked. Nothing left to chance. There is literally nothing that transpires in the universe except what he himself ordained to make sense of reality. You must understand that every moment of life is but the divine activity of God. And you notice that the throne is lofty and exalted. Yahweh is too, but what Isaiah sees is the throne sitting at the top of an enormous series of steps. Picture it in your minds. Massive and staggering, it simply towers over everything else in the palace, which means Isaiah must look up. He must crane his neck up several floors to see the throne soaring in the temple. And again, remember, remember, Isaiah is neither eye level with the throne, nor is he at the base of the throne. He is at the back of the room with his back against the wall. He's standing at the raw edge of terror and as far as he can see. The royal robes of Yahweh fill every square inch of the temple. Which is, of course, a graphic way to illustrate that this is the matchless supremacy of a God who, without a mediator, you had better keep your distance. 
In verse 2, we see the seraphim, don't we? And remember that that word seraphim literally means the burning ones, which tells us that these creatures are blinding, majestic, and even on fire. These are lethal killing machines, you understand? These are agents of destruction. These are angelic mercenaries who, who are ready to be dispatched and do the bidding of the king. And it's not so much that they have six wings, but that they put those six wings to good use. With two, they cover their face because to look fully upon the glory of Yahweh would kill them. With two, they cover their feet because they know they are unworthy. And with two of their wings, they fly. They hover and they fly like Apache helicopters, always in striking position. And we see that their job, their primary ministry at the throne of Yahweh is to worship. To worship Yahweh and revere him. And what they declare with their canon voices that make the ground shake is that he is Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. He is holy, holy, holy. All of the earth is full of his glory. And we asked the question last week, but what is the holiness of God? What does it mean that God is holy? And we saw that it is less a single attribute of God than it is a way to summarize the way that God is matchless and incomparable. It isn't just his sinlessness, it is his otherness. It isn't just his morality, it is his incomparability. It is his transcendence. The very godness of God makes him separate from everything that is not God. He's in a class by himself. He is supremely valuable in every way. That is what it means that God is holy. And God and, and, and the seraphim go on to say that all of the earth is full of his glory, which means what? It means the beauty of, what, of who God is is reflected in what God has made. What is made reflects the glory of the God who is unmade. The creator is displayed in the creation. A display is a creator who transcends his creation. And as the seraphim sing back and forth antiphonally to one another, verse 4 tells us that the pillars of the threshold trembled and the house was filled with smoke. A scene is one of utter chaos and terror. We can't lose that. The walls are cracking. The ground is shaking because the voice of the seraphim who just shattered the sound barrier declaring the glory of Yahweh. Everything you understand, everything about the scene is indicative of judgment. The throne, the seraphim, the smoke filling the temple, the wrath and judgment of God is about to be unleashed. And again, again, the question is, why? Why at this particular stage of Isaiah's ministry did this happen to him? And again, the answer is because he was really, really going to need it. Tomorrow morning, he's going to roll out of bed. And he was going to preach to a people who were on the downward slope sliding to destruction. Nobody was going to repent. Nobody was going to believe. Nobody was going to yield in subjection to the word of God. And the real issue is, as we're about to see, he would be preaching to a people under the blinding curse and power of God so that they wouldn't and couldn't believe. 
so the only, and I mean the only thing that's going to sustain him for a ministry like that is a vision of God supreme and majestic. And you understand, you understand, to make it through the 21st century, we need a vision of God so compelling and even overwhelming that you rightly see that no matter what it is that happens to you, you are always safe in the sovereign hands of God. In other words, we need to enroll for classes at the seminary of trauma. Because unless we see God, I mean, really see him. Unless we are exhilarated by God, we will always just be fearful and lukewarm and apathetic. And that is a fate worse than death. So let me just ask you, do you feel fearful in your soul this morning? Do you feel cold in your soul this morning? Do you oftentimes feel that there's no gas in the tank to be excited about Christ and the Christian life? Because if it feels like there's no gas in the tank, it is because there is no gas in the tank. God does not ask you to be passionate about him and then give you nothing to create that passion. No, what he has given is the holy kindling of the sacred text. And when you read it slow, and you read it careful, and you read it hungry to meet with the living God, that is the path to holy passion in the soul. It brings us next to the despair over man's depravity. The despair over man's depravity. You ever feel underdressed for a party? Multiply that times 10,000 and you have a little bit of what Isaiah felt when he saw the radioactive majesty of the living God. Because he wasn't just underdressed for a party, he was unclean before the Almighty and it almost destroyed him, seriously. As he beholds this terrifying scene before him, it's just too much for his fragile heart to take in and look how he responds to the vision of God, verse 5. He says, woe to me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. You know, lots of people claim, don't they, that they would like to see God? They say it would just be really great if God would just appear and I could see him with my own eyes. And yet after looking at this, I'm not so sure that's a good idea. I'm not really persuaded that would be the pleasant experience for which they hoped because it happened to Isaiah one day and it was a blunt force trauma that almost wrecked him. He almost went into a coma and died. Just seeing, just seeing the glory of God ripped open his soul and exposed what it is that was there lurking beneath the surface. And it was not a pretty picture. And I want to take the response of Isaiah to the majesty of God in three parts. Three parts. First, there is the ruin, there is the reason, and there is the restoration. The ruin, the reason, and the restoration. First, the ruin. Notice the first words that come out of Isaiah's mouth. He says, Woe to me. Woe to me, he says. 
Funny thing about that word woe, it doesn't actually mean anything. It's just a sound. It's an involuntary, guttural cry that you make when you are in terror or in despair. Or in the case of Isaiah, you're both. One commentator says, in this one piercing utterance lies Isaiah's entire self-condemnation. It is an unraveling of the soul, you understand. An existential meltdown, the trauma that rightly ensues when the unclean encounters the Holy One, the one who has been pronouncing woes upon other people this whole time, must now pronounce a woe upon himself. Why? Look what he says. Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am ruined, he says. And I know some English versions say, I am lost. But that Hebrew word is used in other places in the Old Testament to describe the destruction of entire cities. It's to be toppled over, to be in ruins, to be undone, to lie in waste and leveled to the ground. In other words, it is to be consumed with dread and crippled by despair. I think Isaiah understands that his execution is imminent and very well deserved. And this happened just from seeing God. Which tells me we don't see God the way we ought, do we? We remain proud, self-assured, self-righteous, self-confident, and we feel superior to other people until that is we see the radiation of the holiness and majesty of God. And then we are rightly put in our place, and therein lies the secret to true humility. Not merely to think little or less about ourselves, but to see the imponderable majesty of the Holy One. Brings us to the reason. The reason for the despair. Look at the text. Isaiah declares, woe to me, for I am ruined. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Lips, every word there, every word carefully chosen. The reason he gives for the despair in light of the burning splendor of God, notice, is that he's just a man. He's just a man, a finite, created human being. That's it. And not only that, but he is a sinful man, a defiled man. A dirty man, a dirty mouthed man. In an instant, in one instant, Isaiah can immediately see the infinite gulf that exists between him and the Holy One. And yet, what does he mean when he calls himself a man of unclean lips? What does he mean? Well, it's a part that stands for the whole. A dirty mouth means a dirty heart. Put it this way. The heart is the sewer, the mouth is the drain, and what comes out of the drain of the mouth emerges from the sewer of the soul. Whatever pretensions Isaiah may have had about himself before the vision, they're all completely gone, stripped away before the piercing, penetrating vision of the king. And we would expect, wouldn't we? We would expect to, to hear Isaiah justifying himself, himself as being more righteous than his fellow Judeans, and in one sense, that was true. 
that the laser of God's holiness split his soul in two, and in one instance he saw that depravity is depravity, and that no matter how you cut it, that Judas Iscariot and Jared Gilcher, apart from the sovereign grace of God, are really no different in the end. My question is, how did Isaiah come to this conclusion? How, do you, how did he arrive here? I mean, certainly, certainly Isaiah would have admitted that he was a sinner. Certainly, he would have said that his fellow Judeans were wicked sinners because he says so again and again and again in chapters 1 through 5. My question is, what's different about this epiphany right here? The difference is, is that Isaiah, get this, has now discovered in light of who God is just how far down the corruption really goes. That there's no end and no human cure to the corruption. What's different now is that Isaiah has discovered at the deepest possible level what sin actually is. Because we tend, do we not? We tend to measure the evilness of evil by all sorts of arbitrary man-made criteria that we just sort of kind of make up. This is worse than this. A little bit of this is okay. A little sin, half a sin, is better than a whole sin. It's not that bad if no one sees it or knows about it or any sort of delusional insanity we tell ourselves. But like lightning that strikes in the soul in an instant, Isaiah understood with paralyzing gravity that a sin is a sin no matter how small and that sin is in its essence functional idolatry, a galactic mutiny and cosmic treason against the creator. How? How did Isaiah come to this conclusion? Look at the end of verse 5. Ki et... For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. That's what did it. That's what did it. That's right there. Exposed everything. Just seeing God. Even if it was through squinted eyes. Even if it was peering through his fingers. Just seeing the king exposed in an instant Isaiah's own comparative own unworthiness and the application to our lives is clear and unmistakable, isn't it? We will not see sin as heinous until we see God as holy. We will not see sin as repugnant until we see God as extravagant. Put it this way, we to be, if your heart be taken with God, it will not be taken with the sin that replaces God. In fact, in fact, this very vision of Yahweh here in Isaiah chapter 6 should produce in your life worship and exhilaration with Jesus Christ himself, with Christ. It made me think, how could that be? Because Christ is not anywhere in this text, is he not? Is Christ not in the text? 
Because according to John chapter 12, who Isaiah saw here on the throne was not some vague, generic manifestation of deity. No, who he saw here was Jesus Christ himself. In chapter 6, it is Jesus on the throne. I'm not just assuming that. John 12, 41 says that. This is Christ. An appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. So that means that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is holy, holy, holy. He is supreme and sovereign and matchless, which means he is absolutely sufficient for anything you could possibly need in this life. Which brings us finally to the restoration. The restoration, Isaiah is ruined. He's given the reason why. And now in a bizarre and beautiful scene, God provides much needed restoration to Isaiah's soul. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, And in his hand was a burning coal with the tongs that he took from the altar. And he touched it on my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Other than being totally bizarre, what is this? What are we seeing transpire here? And you understand what this is, is a gesture, a gesture of sovereign grace. In response to Isaiah's despair, in response to his existential meltdown, in sight of Yahweh's holiness, one of the seraphim is beckoned by God, by Jesus Christ himself, sitting on the throne, to take a coal, burning coal from the altar, and almost like a nightmare, burn Isaiah's mouth with it. And it shouldn't strike us strange at all. Strange at all that there is an altar there in the heavenly throne room. Revelation tells us again and again and again there is an altar there in the throne room of the Almighty. The question is, what is the throne? What is the burning coal? And what is it that we're seeing transpire here? It's very interesting. A word for hot coal that's only used to describe the altar of incense. That's it. That particular word, only for the altar of incense. Incense, you remember, is a picture of prayer, isn't it? A fragrant aroma to the Almighty. I think the point is, the point here is, the agonized cry of Isaiah's lips counts as a prayer. It's a well-pleasing aroma to Yahweh, the broken-hearted confession from the prophet as he beholds the king's glory was a humble cry that delighted the heart of God. And so this right here is a vivid display of the mercy of God. And so this massive six-winged creature who is on fire glided across the palace with a burning coal in his hand and proceeded to burn Isaiah's mouth, and this is what he says, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned. You see it, don't you? The two words for sin there, and the two verbs, a verb for each sin, 
There is iniquity and there is sin. And the seraphim says that iniquity is taken away and sin is atoned. And the point here is beautiful and it is profound. The point is, every single kind and type of sin of which the human heart is capable, all of it can be forgiven and cleansed. That's the point. All of Isaiah's iniquities and sins have been purified and even incinerated by the cleansing mercy of the Holy One. And you understand your iniquities, your sins, your offenses, all of your crimes against the Almighty can be forgiven and atoned in full. The question is how? How does this happen? How does this happen? You know exactly how it happens, don't you? The way to be forgiven, the way to be reconciled to God, you know. Blood must be shed, right? There has to be a substitute. There has to be a sacrifice without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sin. Because again, just this hot coal thing is just a gesture of sovereign grace. Burning Isaiah's face with a hot coal doesn't have any atoning power in itself to atone for his sin. But it does point to the ultimate transaction that does, namely the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. That's it. You know that, right? That's the only way to be forgiven and reconciled to God, right? The sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. That is it. So what this means then is that Jesus Christ, who is sitting there on the throne, drew upon the saving benefits of his own death in advance and then applied them to Isaiah's bankrupt spiritual bank account centuries before that death ever even took place. Atonement. My question is, how does it feel? How does it feel to stand faultless before the throne? How does that feel? How does it feel to know that guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was He? Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. There is no greater news for sinners like us lost and ruined by the fall. And yet I will say, I will say, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you need to know that you justly stand accused. You do. You are a person of unclean lips. Just as Isaiah was a person of unclean lips. And so therefore your only hope is to do what Isaiah did, which is to cry out, woe to me, I am ruined. Because what is that other than a cry of repentance? And what is repentance but the sweet sorrow of satisfied submission to Jesus Christ? What is repentance but the joyful, no regret, surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't done so, I pray, I pray you're not blowing this off. 
I pray you're not pretending this doesn't apply to you. Because if you don't know Christ, the full, infinite tonnage and weight of his wrath is against you. There is a way where all of that wrath can be paid for. All of that sin can be paid for, yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the description of Isaiah's responsibility. The description of Isaiah's responsibility, and all of a sudden the scene takes a surprising turn. Isaiah's deepest fear is now relieved. Standing there in a smoke-filled palace, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the one who sits upon the throne opens his mouth, and for the first time, he speaks, and of all things, he asks a question. Look at verses 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And I said, Behold me, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but you shall not understand. And keep on seeing, but you shall not comprehend. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and make their ears heavy and make their eyes stick shut lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and their heart understand. And they return and they be healed. You know what that is? The deepest of truths for the darkest of times. One of those landmines in the text. And by deep, I mean scary deep. I mean wonderfully deep. I mean exhilaratingly deep. And notice Yahweh's question there in verse 8. It says, whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? What does that sound like? What does that sound like? It sounds like a mission, doesn't it? A quest? A top secret operation for which Yahweh is recruiting? The funny thing about this is, Isaiah is the only person in the room talking to nobody but to Isaiah in particular. Yahweh's looking for volunteers. And it's also funny to me how open-ended the question is. So little information given about the mission. It's not stated where or to whom or what it is that he must do, only that someone must go. And you notice, don't you? You notice, don't you, the glory, or should I say the Trinitarian glory of the pronoun us? Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? For us, he says. And, and maybe this means the seraphim, but I doubt it. Because although they are agents in God's plan, they are not planners of God's plan. They are the sent. They are not the senders. Instead, what this likely is, is a Trinitarian council meeting. That God is a plurality. That God is one and simultaneously more than one. And that the mission that he had in mind would affect the shifting of entire civilizations. Without a pause... For single hesitation, Isaiah lifts his voice and from across the hall cries out literally in Hebrew, Behold me! Send me! I'll go. I'll do it. I'll go and I'll say and I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. 
which sounds pretty risky, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds a little crazy. But what does it matter when this God is on the throne? With a God like this, how could you lose? With a God like this, what did it matter if the people repented or killed you? What did it matter? The people's response or outcome of his mission was, in one sense, inconsequential, wasn't it? Because the only thing, the only thing that really matters is that this God was sitting on the throne. And I want you to feel that today. I want you to feel that because this text gets glamorized and romanticized, does it not? Especially in missionary sermons, sermons to youth ministry. And that's fine. That's fine. While we do appreciate and we should emulate Isaiah's eager passion to go wherever and to do whatever, let me remind you here, let me have you keep in mind that what God was sending Isaiah into was a ministry with near 100% failure, in a sense. Isaiah was being sent, understand this, not merely to a people who wouldn't repent, but a people who would be prevented by God from repenting. What I'm saying is, the very people to whom Isaiah was sent were under a blinding curse and hardening of God so that they wouldn't and couldn't believe. Any takers? Anyone want to sign up for that? I didn't think so. And maybe you think there's no way. You're making that up. There's no way that's in the Bible. There's no way God would have a mission like that. There's no way that's what the text says. There's no way God would send one of his prophets to a mission like that. Oh, really? Because that's exactly what we see in verses 9 and 10. Look at the text, and as you do, let me warn you to fight the impulse of your heart to change the meaning of the text. Verses 9 and 10. God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And keep on seeing, but you won't comprehend. Make the heart of this people dull and make their ears heavy. Make their eyes stick shut lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and their heart understand and they return and they be healed. I think what Isaiah, what Yahweh just said there is extremely alarming, isn't it? I mean, in verse 9, is contained the mystery of sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean, what's transpiring there in the text? Isaiah is told to declare to the people that they should and must hear the message that he is proclaiming. They should hear, they must hear. Keep on hearing, keep on seeing, he says. They're responsible to do that. That doesn't change. But notice Isaiah is also told to tell those very same people that they will neither believe nor understand the message he is called to proclaim. Keep seeing, but you won't understand. Keep hearing, but you won't comprehend. And the reason, the reason 
they will neither believe nor understand is because their rejection of the message is not merely anticipated. It has been ordained by God. The rejection of the truth was not merely predicted. It had been predestined. And if you don't believe me, look again at verse 10. And pay very close attention to the effect of Isaiah's preaching, what it was designed to do and prevent in the hearts of the people of Judah. Make the heart Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy. Make their eyes stick shut. Lest they should see with their eyes. Lest they should hear with their ears. Lest their heart should understand. And they return. And they be healed. Do you see the mission to which he's called? Dull their hearts. Disable their ears. Blind their eyes. Isaiah, I'm not sending you to save them, but to harden them. Isaiah, for your new stage of ministry, my word through you is designed to produce in the people their very rejection that would lead to their destruction. Here we stand on the precipice of mystery, don't we? Here we teeter on the brink of the mind-exploding mystery of God, and it will not do, it will not do to change the meaning of the text, but to yield to the meaning of the text. One writer says, this passage is especially disturbing to Christians whose whole upbringing has conditioned them toward an emphasis upon God's forgiving grace and will to deliver, as if that is the only thing God does in his plan. Yet these verses depict God as preventing the very repentance that he commands so that total destruction may occur. And he's right. Isaiah gets it. That's exactly what he understands. Because look at his response in verse 11. Lord, how long? Uh, how long is the curse supposed to last? How long will the blindness be? What will the outcome of this hard, heart-hardening, eye-blinding curse, what will the outcome be? And God's answer to that in verses 11 and 12 is... Exile, invasion, war, slavery, exile, and destruction. Verses 11 and 12 depict the entire country laid waste and leveled to the ground. And 120 years later, that's exactly what happened when Babylon stormed the gates. And maybe you're thinking, that's crazy, and that is crazy. Maybe you're thinking, wait, wait, I, I don't get it. Doesn't God want them to repent and turn to him? Doesn't he want them to believe? And the answer is yes and no. 
Yes and no. In one sense, in one level of God's complexity, he most certainly does, does, does desire their repentance because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their ways and live. He does not desire that any perish, but all come to repentance. Those verses are all still true. But in another sense, in another level of God's complexity, he does not desire their repentance, but their rejection and ultimately their condemnation. That's what he means when he says, lest they return and be healed. He's preventing their repentance. The question is why? Why would God do that? Why on earth would God ordain their rejection leading to their destruction? And the answer is don't miss this. If you miss this, you walk away with a view of God that is not helpful. Why would God do that? The answer is this. Because something more important than their immediate repentance, healing, and forgiveness was at stake. Something more glorious, more fundamental, more weighty and consequential was in the works here in this moment that would affect his entire plan for history. In other words, what I'm saying is the blinding curse and judgment of God here upon the people of Judah would result in two glorious effects. Number one, the blinding curse of God upon Israel for their unbelief would lead to their rejection, and even the crucifixion of their Messiah. Does that, does that make sense? This blindness, curse of blindness right here in this text would lead to the ultimate rejection and even crucifixion of the Messiah. I say that because that is exactly what the Gospels say. Did you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all quote this text right here? And they give it as the ultimate reason why they crucified their own Messiah. And yet you know, you know in the greatest plot twist in history, the death of the Messiah would result in the salvation of the nations. Effect number two. Yahweh designed the rejection of his people here, get this, to set the stage for their greater rescue in the future. Do you hear that? In other words, he didn't save them here now also that he could save them later in a greater way that would bring him more glory than if he had saved them here. Because you understand God's not done with Israel. Not even close. The best is yet to come for Israel. And it's what, what Isaiah calls again and again a new and greater exodus. 
One day, one day, national Israel will embrace their Messiah and they will be granted every single covenant promise and guarantee God ever made to his people, which is exactly what Paul argues in Romans eleven twenty-five through 26 when he says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, of this mystery, that you may not be uninformed, ignorant, because he says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles will come in and then all Israel shall be saved. And if you're wondering how on earth any of that could have any relevance to your life right now, the answer is the deepest of truths for the darkest of times. If this passage gives us anything, it's that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over the heart of man. The sin of man doesn't ruin his plan and that he is right now working all things for good. Give me a few more minutes. Let's finish with the depiction of Israel's delivery. The depiction of Israel's delivery, verse 13. Because you have to understand, this blinding curse upon the people of Judah, this was not the final word of God for his people. Not the final word. There was still hope for them. There was and is still a future for them. And verse 13, cryptic and mysterious though it may be, is like a little ember of hope under a field of ashes. Notice what Yahweh says in verse 13. He says, in it, that is, in the land, there will still be a tenth. A tenth, he says. I don't cook. It is unwise. But I do understand how cooking works. And cooking, you've got your gallon. You've got your quart. Your cup. Your third cup. Your half a cup. Your tablespoon. Your teaspoon. And here, you've got a tenth, which in the cooking world is a pinch or a dash. This, Judah, right here, if they are a gallon at this time, a pinch and a dash would be spared. A remnant would return. Of those taken in exile and those who would hobble back into the land, a tiny little remnant would return. And God goes on to say in verse 13 that this remnant, this little remnant would be burned or better purged. In other words, if you look at verse 13, Yahweh compares all of Judah to a forest leveled to the ground and then burned. And all that's left over is a charred, blackened, tiny, little stump. And look what he says at the end of verse 13. The holy offspring is its stump. What is he saying? God would spare a tiny little remnant. And from this remnant, one day there would be a people of Israel who would embrace their Messiah and receive every promise and guarantee God ever made to them and they and we will live happily ever after. More could be said. I realize I'm pressed for time. Give me two minutes here. 
promise, Scout's Honor, because I claimed at the beginning that from this chapter we would see implications that would ground our hope, that would calm our fears and increase our faith. With this, I close. Listen carefully. Number one. Number one, Isaiah 6 helps us worship in a distracted age, doesn't it? Isaiah 6 helps us worship in a distracted age because in a world of cheap amusements, this is a God who thrills the soul. Number two, Isaiah 6 gives us courage in a dangerous age. Courage in a dangerous age. Because with this God on the throne, what left is there to fear? Number three, Isaiah produces holiness in a depraved age. Holiness in a depraved age because to see God is to become like God. Number four, Isaiah 6 gives us humility in a delusional age. Humility in a delusional age because with this God on the throne, how could we possibly be arrogant or proud? Number five. Isaiah 6 produces zeal in a discouraged age. Zeal in a discouraged age. Because with a God like this ruling the world, how could we possibly be lazy or apathetic? Number six. Isaiah 6 gives us perspective in a politically devious age. Perspective in a politically devious age. Because you know just as well as I, corrupt politicians abound, don't they? And we are sick of being lied to. Here is a God who can and must be trusted. Let's pray. O Yahweh of hosts, we understand that our view of you needs some work and needs an upgrade. It needs some bolstering. It needs a workout. And I pray that Isaiah 6 would be just the weight we need to lift to strengthen our view of you, to strengthen our view of Christ to sharpen an understanding of what you're doing in the world. Oh, I pray that this text would shape us in the secret moments. And let us leave this room, O oh Lord, with a sense of feeling victorious and even invincible, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what you are doing in the world. And it's in the matchless name of your son that we pray. Amen.